there was an interesting article op-ed recently that progressives are not liberal. And if we think of liberal as valuing the rights of all and celebrating the differences of all, um, progressives are very much about standing up for minorities against majorities. They're actually not even so much about coexistence. And I think that what America has wanted to be, whether or not it's been very successful in doing that, is to be a place where value differences can be not just tolerated, but valued and celebrated. Welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. I'm here today with David Peter Straw. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Julian. Yeah, David is the author of Systems Thinking for Social Change, a practical guide to solving complex problems. And I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation, you know, diving deeper into systems change, into natural systems, into human-made systems into you know, uh, empowered individuals and maybe also disempowered individuals and how systems change can, can arrive and, and, and you know, maybe, maybe also what the world needs most in times like these. And um, maybe let's start with that question actually. What, what do you think if we were to just like a big question right from the get-go, what does the world need most from people? Um, or what do people need most to, to encounter the, this ever-changing world that we live in? Uh, great question. I think mostly we need to appreciate and deepen our appreciation of where our joy comes from. Um, we are taught by the market that our joy comes from acquisition of stuff. And it's simply not true. <laughs> um, it works to a certain extent. And um, beyond that, it actually doesn't give us greater happiness. Um, the research shows, and we look at our own experience, um, it shows that joy comes from connecting um, connecting with, uh, with nature and being nourished by nature, connecting with other people, um, and certainly connecting with different experiences and different places. Uh, and that, that's really what we need to recognize and reclaim. A lot of the needs for acquisition or feelings like we need to continuously be acquiring things um, tend to be manufactured. Uh, they tend, you, tend to be manufactured by advertising, uh, by the marketplace. And it's very important that we step back and recognize where our joy really comes from. Hmm. I love that. I love that answer. It's a great way to start this conversation. 
and I, I personally could not agree more. Uh, you know, my my personal experience keeps pointing at that. No matter where I travel to in the world, is that people that can source joy from relationship, from the place they live in, um, they are at an advantage. They are at an advantage in in many ways of looking at it. Um, but before we dive deeper, there, let's let's maybe back backtrack uh, back, or backtrack or sidestep for a second here, uh, David. I'd love to know. You know, you wrote you wrote a, a fascinating book about systems thinking and social change, and you know how to achieve lasting results, and, and you know how to avoid unintended consequences, which which seems to be part of intentful design. Is that there'll always be unintended consequences? Maybe maybe share with us. What made you write that book? How did you get inspired to write write that book? And and what's what's your intention with putting this kind of work out there into the world? Hmm. Well, it's interesting. As you ask that question, I realize that it comes back to a passion I have for connecting, uh, connecting people more effectively to each other and to their broader environments. I actually started my uh, education and work uh, wanting to be an urban transportation planner. And I recognized uh, even then the, the need to combine um, engineering and an understanding of how things fit in that way, uh, along with a sociological and, and psychological understanding of what motivates people and um, how they operate in groups. Um, I think ultimately this evolved into uh, an importance of the spiritual aspects of the work that I do now as well. But once I was in graduate school um, at MIT, I was introduced, I actually read a chapter in a book on the role of the integrator in society. And I thought, wow, this is really neat. And uh, I talked to the professor who'd written the, the book and the chapter, who happened to be in my department. And I explained to him, I'd worked in these large bureaucracies and I was uh, related to government and transportation and so on. It, it just was that way. Um, but I'd also had a hobby as an actor. And so I love the being part of a group of an ensemble, creating something together and meshing energies and parts. And, uh, and so he said, Oh, it sounds like you might be interested in organization development, which I'd never heard of at the time. Uh, but it was offered uh, at the Sloan School of Management, and I took a course, and it just felt in many ways like the right place to be. Uh, I felt that the people I was meeting had similar values to mine um, about the, the value of work in our lives, and if you give people responsibility, uh, they will tend to rise to the occasion. And at the same time, I felt there were a lot of people in the field as I was meeting them who were frustrated that they weren't effectively able to uh, sway senior executives about the value of these ways of, of leading and mm -hmm. managing. Uh, 
so I found myself diving in fully with one foot and uh, keeping the other one out because <laughs> something didn't quite fit. And I took a, uh, several years later, I reconnected with someone who had been in my uh, first organization development class, took a personal growth workshop that was very opening. And it really pointed to not just the emotional dimension of personal growth and fulfillment, but also the importance of how we think uh, as impacting our lives and the importance of having a sense of purpose, uh, having a vision. Uh, and all of this led me to realize that the conventional approaches to organization development were really much more emotionally centered uh, and focused on problem solving almost for its own sake, rather than what are the underlying visions and aspirations that we have within which we're going to have plenty of problems to solve. And how do the individual and the larger environment relate to each other? So uh, that led me to accept an invitation from this uh, former classmate of mine to co-found a consulting firm called Innovation Associates in the late 1970s, which one of the other co-partners was uh, a guy also at MIT at the time, uh, Peter Senge, who went on to write a book in 1990 based on the work that we were pioneering called The Fifth Discipline, um, the art and practice of learning organization. And that work just took off and really resonated. And what he called the fifth discipline was systems thinking which was core to the work that we were introducing to executives. The ability to understand often the, the often non-obvious connections between different parts of a system, the fact that systems uh, not only behave, but also evolve in ways that our conventional education doesn't get at, and that we really need to change the way we think if we are going to be more effective in addressing chronic, complex problems, which are the stuff of the social and environmental challenges that I believe you, your listeners and, and my clients are most interested in and concerned about. Uh, and a paradox really came out of this work. I think there were several paradoxes. One of them is that as we expand our ability to think about the larger systems that we want to impact, we still have to come back to ourselves as individuals and recognize our contributions, not only to the solutions that we're trying to make, but actually also to the problems 
themselves. Because one of the things that systems thinking teaches is that we're all part of the system. Whatever that system is that we want to change, we're part of it. And in a sense, the greatest point of leverage, at least initially, the greatest control we have over these large, unwieldy systems starts with really reflecting on and questioning our own intentions, our own thinking, and our own behavior. So systems thinking challenges us to ask the question, how might we, albeit unwittingly, unintentionally, be contributing to the very problem that we're trying to solve? And we don't ask that question in order to then finger point and blame ourselves, but actually to empower ourselves. Because to the extent that the system includes our own intentions, our own thinking, and our own behavior, and they inevitably do, that's the place for us to start. It's not the place for us to end. I mean, we all, um, you know, certainly, again, your listeners, myself, my clients, we want to impact a larger system. And there are ways of understanding how systems behave and how they change that we can get better at understanding so that we can be more effective in impacting those larger systems. But we still have to start with ourselves. And you said it, right? We're intricately linked to the systems, which is often easy to overlook that the system is something external of us, right? Same as when we look at nature traditionally, at least the way that I remember this concept was introduced to me in, in early days of school and, and largely even still in the media, it seems like nature is something externalized from us. But in reality, both nature as well as the systems that humans made, we are intricately linked, we are a part of it, and we can't really unlink that link, which you know, would, that would probably be a, a whole other conversation. But so I come to the same conclusion, right? Which I think is why for me, it's so important to like talk about empowered individuals and understand that as long as individuals are unempowered or being fed um, specific narratives, I think it's very difficult for individuals to take personal action that goes beyond feeling, uh, yeah, as you said, almost like blaming ourselves. Oh, I, I keep making the wrong choices or it's so difficult to make a real impact or this is something that's only up for governments and uh, you know, leadership, but but in reality, that's that's not entirely how it works, right? Like, I mean, reality is created as a co-creation between all of us. So, so how do you how do you see that role of in, empowered individuals um, play out, and 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 where does that where does it show up in your in your work that that you mentioned with with clients with with organizations? Um, I'm curious to understand that better. Well, one of my uh, largest clients right now is a um, global conservation organization. And they are committed to you know, mitigating climate change, to 
conserving natural environments. And they have been accustomed and grew out of working in individual locations. And that's what they were really good at. That's how they raised money. That's where they could measure their impact. And as they became more successful and expanded their aspirations for impacting not only specific local environments, but also conservation uh, and sustainable development on a much larger scale, it's challenging them to go beyond their own experiences, their own comfort zones in knowing how to work very well locally. Because when you start working um, at the level of the planet or even at the level of the United States as opposed to, let's say, individual states, um, there's an additional level of complexity. There are changes that need to be made in terms of how people make decisions, allocate resources, generate resources, think about what's important and what needs to be measured and what kinds of information need to be tracked, uh, what competencies need to be cultivated. Lots of different things need to change. And so they're really having to expand their commitment, really, not just to changing the world, <laughs> which they have in abundance, but changing themselves and how they operate as an organization to match that aspiration. And there's a wonderful lyric I came across several years ago. I don't know the song, but the lyric was, everybody wants to change the world. Nobody wants to change themselves. Mm -hmm. And yeah, what at struck this point, me is, I think know, it's almost, yeah, go ahead. There's, there's a lot of truth to that. Right. And I think at this point, it's almost, um, I get almost uh, a bit, skeptical when i hear uh oh, we must change the world or our goal is to you know change the world we must save the world that that one is even you know definitely occurred to me many years ago as well i'm like well that world that we live in seems to be at a dire state but really like saving the world or changing the world are they're very placative statements it's very easy to say them but they they're very easy to mean nothing right and and i think real systems change um, has a lot to do with individual and has a lot to do with with smaller groups just as much right mm -hmm. and the way small groups can actually make tremendous difference in the world what is your take on you know the role of bioregionalism and bioregional health in systems change and changing the world into a place that actually can balance out those paradoxical and opposing forces like like capitalism like nature like our human nature you know like the well-being of of all do you think bioregionalism plays a role in that conversation? I would say that I would actually start 
with, I mean, the answer is yes. And um, hmm. my wife and partner, Marilyn Paul, is have been engaged now over the last two or three years in a project that she calls it's hard to save the planet when you don't know what to do. And the idea being that people feel so overwhelmed by everything that's happening in the environment that they don't know where to start and in not knowing where to start, they don't start. Um, and so I would, bioregionalism to me makes a lot of sense. Um, and I would also say, so how do you practice sustainable living in your own space? To what extent are you practicing it in your home? To what extent are you talking about it in your community, your immediate community? To what extent are you seeking to influence legislators? To what extent are you making purchasing decisions uh, consistent with your values? To what extent are you deliberately communicating about your purchasing decisions to the, uh, the manufacturers of the products? Because on the other side, there's a tendency to want to wait until quote unquote government gets it or until corporations get it. And consistent with what you said a few minutes ago about the power of small groups as individuals and then small groups, once when you add all of those decisions up, they will have that kind of impact. But they won't have that kind of impact if we just wait around or do sort of the bare minimum and hope that then uh, people who control or influence larger systems uh, finally act more responsibly. I don't think they will do that without messages from the market and from the voters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, there's this famous Margaret Mead quote, right? Never doubt that a small mm -hmm. group of thoughtful, committed individuals can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has changed the world. And yeah. I, this, this quote, I feel like it's, it's in the background of many of these conversations I've been having on this podcast because it's, it's really about finding personal empowerment and finding the connection to personal purpose to understand where can I apply being me into the world. At least that's how I see the, the world around us, rather than saying, these are all the things that are happening in the world, and these are all the things that are wrong, or these are all of the groups that are doing certain things wrong, which that might be true and accurate. But I think the question to me always is, where's the bridge back to our, my personal nature and my personal contribution into the, into the field, into uh, you know, the groups I interact with? And as an individual, we might not have the power to change everything, but we might be much more powerful than we think. Mm -hmm. It's also important, I think, Julian, um, to understand the circular nature of 
social systems and natural systems. Mm-hmm. That systems tend to behave and evolve circularly, not linearly. And why I say that and why that's so important is uh, years ago in a workshop, was teaching people about how to think systemically and to think in these circular terms and to pick some kind of chronic um, complex problem that they had been trying to solve unsuccessfully and to begin applying some of these tools to gain some insight into it. And after an hour or two working on the exercise, one of the participants came up to me and he said, wow, this is so useful. And to think I've been going in circles on this for years. And I thought to myself, the problem isn't that you've been going in circles. It's that you haven't seen the circles you've been going in. So what are the circles that we go in? We get, let's say, frustrated by, um, you know, the amount of plastic um, and so we uh, commit ourselves to, to buying less plastic. And then we, uh, I just got this notification I've got to get rid of. Okay. Um, we get, um, you know, we do a little bit. And then we took take a look around and We don't see much change happening in the larger environment. And then we tell ourselves, geez, that wasn't really helpful. And so it's still so much easier Hmm. to get the stuff with a lot of plastic packaging or not write a letter to uh, a company saying, I'm not going to buy your products anymore because there's too much plastic or whatever it is. And so we stop. And then we start feeling frustrated again. And then we'll pick up something else. We go in circles. Um, But we, again, don't realize the circles that we're going in. And what I want people to learn is that once you see the circles you are going in and can make those really clear and explicit and visual to yourself, then you have much better chance of creating new circles. Circles that reinforce each other more positively. So I made that decision. I didn't buy that product. And then I sent a letter to the company. And then I talked with my neighbors and friends about what I've been thinking about, what I ended up doing and how it made me feel. And not in any way to try to make anyone else feel guilty about what they were doing, but just that it it really helped me feel a lot better. And I just wanted the people I care about to know that I was doing something that made me feel better. Um, and out of that, they may end up doing something differently and they may buy a different product or they may send a letter And in this way, we start creating another set of circles. And as far as, you know, maybe going back to your question about bioregionalism, which I realize I I haven't addressed, um, 
we always have to think about what level of system are we going or levels of system are we going to interact with? Because ultimately everything is connected. And if we work, let's say, at the level of, um, I don't know, my county or my state, from a bioregional point of view, that may or may not be enough, depending on what the bioregion is. But even if I pick a bioregion, which is not most likely going to be consistent with political entities, then I'm going to have to start expanding into a political world that isn't aligned with a bioregion. Uh, and then if I think about, well, this bioregion, let's say we're, we're experiencing a lot of drought in California. Yes, there's, we can make decisions about how we conserve water, how we can encourage our political leaders to invest more in um, groundwater conservation, not just in, um, you know, reservoirs and dams and so on. Um, we could do something at the level of the bioregion in terms of at least reducing water consumption, ideally saving more water as well. But then obviously my region's becoming, uh, having more drought is impacted by other decisions that are made at the level of the United States or made at the level of, um, you know, Saudi Arabia and digging another oil well or whatever it is. Uh, so we have to pick our own boundaries in ways that make sense to us because the world is not so going to conveniently present those boundaries to us. So whether we choose to work at the level of the individual, at the level of the bioregion or beyond, one, it's all connected. And two, where can we have the greatest impact um, and ideally influence mm -hmm. is something else that we always have to take into account. And it is all connected, as you said. And it also, I think it's important to, to double tap that it does matter, right? Just like it does matter what buying decision we make, even though if you, if you don't buy that iPhone or you do buy that iPhone, it might not stop Apple from producing iPhones, but it does, it does create a different, a different kind of ripple. And the same with a bioregional health decision or initiative. But, you know, your example is great with, with California and, and the droughts because yeah, there's there's bigger things going on and and other interests that are governing over what happens in California than just on the ground. However, the on the ground action doesn't um, become meaningless only because there's other things going on. And I think that dichotomy, that kind of paradox, that's often the case with with decision when it comes to decision making as an individual or as an individual that represents a company of like, what is the best path of action to take here? Because there are other interests, other stakeholders, other 
steps of action that I might not be able to stop or that I might not even have to stop um, or that should definitely not stop me from taking the actions that, that I'm here to take, right? And, I, and again, I, I want to come back to the idea of empowerment because it's really hard to see that if fundamentally the world happens to us like, um, you know, like, like something that's always threatening our existence. And I think it is much easier to see the validity and the, the valor and the, the need in actions and, and steps that are born out of the individual and, and our, our individual instruction, our own guidance, our own source connection, our own knowing, our own intuition, right? It, it becomes much clearer when we understand, well, it, this is an interplay between me and the, the outside world. This is, uh, none of us exist in a vacuum. Um, yeah, maybe you want to touch on this. If not, I'll, I'll make a, a follow-up question out of that. But, but yeah, well, does, that, does that resonate? Yeah. Uh, what, what it sparked for me is a, a quote from Václav Havel, who was the labor leader who then became you know, the first president of a, a free Poland uh, in the 1990s. And he said, hope is knowing that you're doing the right thing no matter how it turns out. And I, I just thought that was very, very wise. And as you say, you know, we do, we do have intuitions, instincts, conscience, values. We do have a, a moral compass, whatever that is. And if we are being true to that, that's the most important thing we can do is to operate from that place. And that, in a sense, will, will help us um, define and, if necessary, expand the boundaries for which we feel some responsibility. I, um, there's an equation that I, I don't quite know where it came from, but the idea, and we used it in our work for, for years, I still do, that power comes from responsibility and responsibility is a choice. So the more sense of responsibility I have, the more power I will have. And again, it's a matter of choice. What do I choose to feel responsible for? So leaders, let's say in the environmental movement, have a feeling of responsibility toward the environment that the rest of us don't experience to the same extent. It's not necessarily good or bad. It's not that they're better people or worse people or anything like that. It's that however it has come about, they have that sense of responsibility for something much, much larger than themselves. And out of that, they acquire power. People give power to them because they can see that 
what those people represent is something that is also in their best interest. So choice, power, responsibility, all of those things are related to each other. Hmm. Yeah, we've been touching on this since the beginning and, and I've been kind of, you know, looking forward to asking this question very specifically. I'd love to, to tap in deeply here into the relationship between nature and capital, capitalism and the distinction of the two of them. Because all of those elements we've talked about right now, they're also in an interplay between our internal operating system, which is very much nature, and then the external operating system in which the, the global society meets in, which is capitalism, right? And so it would be interesting to, to hear um, your take on that, David, of what is the relationship between the two of them and what are the distinctions between the two of them? One of the building, great question, one of the building blocks of understanding how complex systems behave, whether they be social or environmental, is that they're comprised of what are called reinforcing and balancing feedback relationships. So a reinforcing relationship is one that builds on itself, that amplifies itself. Um, if you feel good about yourself, you'll take on some new challenge. And then to the extent that you succeed at that challenge, you'll feel better about yourself and you'll take on something bigger the next time. Uh, if you, from a very practical point of view, if you um, put money away to save, that money will produce interest and that interest will increase your savings and that will increase the amount of interest that you earn and so you're uh, saving more money and growing your equity over time um, the flip side is cancer cancer amplifies it builds on itself, but it builds unhealthy cells on top of unhealthy cells. And so epidemics, pandemics, um, all of those are negative expressions of this reinforcing tendency. So we could call that tendency a tendency toward growth. Could be good, could be bad, bad but it's growth. On the flip side is a core structure of balance. That we want things to maintain some kind of equilibrium, or we need them to maintain some kind of equilibrium. So if we um, are tired, we sleep. After we've slept, we're no longer tired, and so we can do things and be active, and then We'll be too active and we'll start feeling sleepy and so we'll start feeling tired and then hopefully we'll sleep more uh, or sleep again and then it's a cycle. Uh, we maintain our body temperature at, at 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, a thermostat, whether it be a thermostat that regulates our own body temperature or the temperature in a room, is designed to maintain a balanced state. 
And so balance is also very, very important. Ironically, in nature, there tend to be more balancing systems than there are growth systems. And to the extent, and of course things grow in nature, but growth always occurs within a context of balance. Balance is essential to sustainable nature. And again, there's growth that occurs within it. Um, I happened to do a workshop in uh, Baja, California, and one of the exercises was we went to a, a palm forest and we're asked to spend a half an hour in the palm forest and just take a look and see what we got out of looking around. And one of the things that really amazed me is there are these towering palm trees and I'd look at the base and most of it was dry. And there were dead leaves all over the place. And I got to really viscerally appreciate that literally life and death are always coexisting. It's not a sequence. It's not, even though, yes, for us as human beings, one day we're, you know, alive or hopefully more days, and then at some point we're dead. It's that life is always coexisting with death. The two are, and these palm trees were living expressions of that. Uh, in, if you have ever done a safari and you're out in the veldt, um, and you see, you know, the beautiful kudus or deer or antelope or whatever, and then you see the predators. And over time, there's a balance between the predators and the prey. Because if the predators overeat the prey, then they're ultimately going to hurt their own chances of survival. So balance is just intrinsic to nature and growth exists within a context of balance. What's happened with extractive capitalism, and I say extractive very deliberately because I think there is enormous value in capitalism. There's been a lot written on conscious capitalism or whatever we'd want to call it. Um, there is value to that. But there's only value if capitalism, is, which is growth-oriented, is recognized as having to coexist with limits. And I think what has happened with extractive capitalism is the belief that you can grow without limits. And that you can always externalize costs. You can always internalize the benefits. And you can keep growing. Now, if it's at the expense of everybody else, so be it. But the assumption is that balance is um, irritating at best and unnecessary at worst. Or maybe it's the other way around. <laughs> In any case, it's not valued. Balance is not valued. And I think that 
if we are going to survive, it's because we're developing an economic structure, whatever that is, or economic structures that value balance as much as they do growth. Yeah, I like this this finger point at, at the interplay of, of growth and balance. I'd love to demystify the word balance a little bit more. Um, you know, I, I feel like as an individual, when I hear the word balance or when I hear it in, in, in personal development context, um, it's a bit of a, a mysterious word, you know, because balance can never be achieved in just one moment in time. It, no. It's achieved over, as you said, like the interplay of life and death, right? So in, in, the, in this case, maybe balance as an, for an ecosystem, you know, given, as you said, like a, a conscious form of capitalism, um, how would how would balance be measured? Would it be the the natural world over time? Would it be the well being of of people, planet, and participants? It, it's an interesting one for me to to kind of dig my teeth in because I, I fundamentally agree with you, but I feel like there's it seems very uh, mysterious, yeah, mm. as a concept. Well, I think that um, one way of determining is there balance within capitalism is are the resources on which capitalism depends sustainable or not? Um, are we eating our own seed corn, if you will? Um, you know, it's interesting that the Middle East once, and particularly, let's say, around the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, were known as the Fertile Crescent. Fertile Crescent. And then there was too much agriculture in relation to the available water. And eventually the area became arid and it dried up. So growth did not exist within balance in that environment, nor did it exist um, in balance in Easter Island where they over harvested the trees and then again lost the water, lost the ability to grow food and so on. Um, so one way of defining balance is, is what you are consuming being replaced by what is growing? Very simply put. And another form of balance, I think, is where we are looking at quality of life indicators to replace quantity of life indicators. You know, there are all sorts of um, very strong legitimate criticisms of GDP, for example, as uh, a measure of success because you can grow certain products within GDP and actually be killing yourself. Um, so quality of life, I think, is also trying to get at this idea of um, living with balance and feeling fulfilled with balance. And it isn't that you necessarily stop consuming and have to become part of a survivalist community or whatever, but you're continuously paying attention to 
what you're taking in and what you're uh, producing. And those need to be in balance. This is as with breathing. If you take in too much air or too little air, um, right. forget it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this this is very insightful, and, and I like that we, we tapped um, a, a bit deeper into the idea of balance. Um, David, this has been a, a great conversation with you, and you know, quite philosophical in nature, but but also um, very much on the thread of what regeneration really is, what what systems change into, you know, um, maybe a dominant destructive species and dominant destructive individuals into yeah a cooperative regenerative or a cooperative healthy uh, planet right like this is an evolution that the that our species is in and i think we we know we learn through mistakes um as individuals as well as a collective and so for, for me personally it's not a not a question of if it's more a question of when you know and uh and and, and changing mistakes when they happen um I'd love to to end with with just a last question that I have often asked in this podcast. And you know, if if you were to dream freely and and leave like a a vision or or a legacy for you know seven generations out into the future, like what's your what's your dream for this planet? What's your dream of how we we solve this ball of spaghetti that we've created and and come into more coherence as a species? To me, it would be. Learning to celebrate differences instead of squash them. Um, there was an interesting article, op-ed recently, that progressives are not liberal. And if we think of liberal as valuing the rights of all and celebrating the differences of all, um, Progressives are very much about standing up for minorities against majorities. They're actually not even so much about coexistence. And I think that what America has wanted to be, whether or not it's been very successful in doing that, is to be a place where value differences can be not just tolerated but valued and celebrated and to me that's kind of the spice of life uh, if you do a lot of traveling you see people live very differently they're remarkably similar in some ways and remarkably different in others and hopefully for the most part, those differences are matters of curiosity and interest and variety and all of that, not threats. Um, and people are also very different than the, their governments. Um, you can be at, at war with another government and yet if you visit the people in that country, they're just people and they're hospitable and they want to reach out and help you out and so on and so forth. So to me, that's, that's my vision. Um, I also do want to say that as ph philosophical as this conversation has tended to be, 
Um, and obviously I love that part of it. There are some very practical things that leaders can do to lead systems change. And it's not just a matter of thinking differently. There are emotional competencies, there are behavioral skills, there are spiritual capacities to develop. Um, my book talks about a four-stage change process. I mean, we can codify tools and approaches here to take these maybe philosophical, larger ideas, aspirational ideas, and ground them in meaningful, impactful actions. And that to I, me I very is much love as that. important as the, uh, the philosophies. Well, well, so, so, you know, as we've um, come to this place of, of um, kind of marinating a little bit in the philosophy of it, I think we're at that very ripe point, right? Where it's like, so, so you know, in, in your own words, I know there's many, I know you, that's part of your work. Um, what are some of the, the simplest practical steps that, that, you know, anybody who's listened to this episode, who's, who's with us, you know, about 50 minutes in, um, can take away and say, yeah, that's, that's real. This is how I can lead this in my own orbit, in my own world, in my own organization. You know, two or three of them, uh, David. Sure. Well, well, I think there are two, two different anchors if you want to be an effective leader of systems change. One is anchor people in some kind of shared direction. That could be a vision, it could be a sense of mission, could even be shared values, um, a shared sense of a future that we need to prepare for, whether we you know, think it's a good idea or not, we better be prepared. So there's a lot of different ways to get people focused up and out toward what is important for them to create and they can only create together. The second anchor needs to be some shared understanding of not only where we are, but why we are where we are. So a shared understanding of current reality. For example, if I, say, if I get everybody excited that we're going to um, Australia together, let's say. And yet some of us think we're starting in Hong Kong and others of us are thinking we're starting in South America. We're not going to be able to get from here to there because we have very different perceptions of where here is. And developing that shared understanding of where we are and particularly how we got there is not necessarily trivial. Um, one of my favorite metaphors in this work is the blind man and the elephant. You know, different people touching different parts of the elephant, swearing that that elephant is the whole thing, whether it be the, the trunk or 
the trunk is like an ear or a, a hose or the ear is like a fan and so on and so forth. If we go in with saying we all want to go to the same place, but we think we're in very different places. And moreover, that the reason that we're in the mess we're in is because of other people in the system whom we're going to naturally think that if we could just change them, everything would be fine. So we need to step back to understand and really value and deepen our understanding of how we got here, why we are where we are. And with those two anchors, then we can really make progress. And so a very common question that came out of, you know, Japanese quality circles was why. Why, 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 why? Not how, but why. And it's premature to ask how, how we're going to solve this until we actually have a shared understanding of what this is. And there's a whole bunch of things you can do to deepen your understanding of what's going on and why. A good place to start is what are the driving, what's the driving purpose behind all of this? And what are some of the underlying beliefs and assumptions that people have? So if we believe that growth is always good, if we believe that our satisfaction is going to come from what we have, um, and so on, those beliefs or assumptions are going to tend to keep us stuck versus joy, you know, life satisfaction comes from connection. Um, there's value and balance and so on. Yeah, I enjoy these more practical and very like question-oriented, uh, inquiry-oriented um, pointers. It's, it's very much... Um, what gets us deeper very much how I, you know, how my own journey has looked and, um, you know, part of what I, what I do with clients uh, as well. But I, I also think it is an everyday kind of thing, right? It's like a, one of the most traditional meditation techniques. Who am I? Why am I here? Yeah. So thank you for guiding us deep into the philosophy, but also into the practicality of this, um, David. Um, is there something you'd like to say before we wrap the episode? Just... Um, well, I just will encourage people, if, if you want to learn more about the practical application of these ideas, including, and I love what you just said, the power of asking the right questions. What are questions that lead people naturally to think systemically? And those questions and, and how you can work with the answers are, are all in my book, uh, Systems Thinking for Social Change. And, um, you know, encourage people to pick up a copy if, if this is intriguing to them and they want to ground what we've been talking about. Excellent. Go get the book, guys. Thank you so much, David, for being on the show. 